Well, greetings in the name of the Lord Jesus. It's a pleasure to be with you. I have looked forward to this very, very much in uh, coming to Grace Bible Church San Diego. I appreciate your pastor. He's been involved in helping the Reformed Baptist Network get started from its very beginning. And that has been a joy to get uh, acquainted with him. Also thankful for his passion for missions as well. I know he has that. It's obvious in the prayer, but it's obvious in his work that he does. And I'm assuming that that's true of this congregation as well. He does serve on the missions committee of Reformed Baptist Network. And uh, I'm thankful for his input there too. Well, I do love the Lord by the grace of God. I haven't always loved the Lord. And probably many of you can say that too, can't you? And I do have a heart for missions. That heart was really ignited in my heart for missions, even as a very young boy in the church in which I grew up. I never dreamed that I'd be able to visit missionaries on various countries and different continents. I remember asking the Lord as a pastor, Lord, if I could just visit one missionary in one country and see your work in another country. And then 13 countries later, my prayer was answered way beyond whatever I could have asked or expected. My message isn't, is, has an application for missions this morning. In fact, uh, I think a very direct application. It's from the book of Isaiah, chapter 62. And I want to speak to you about the glory of the church. And my purpose in speaking to you about the glory of the church of Jesus Christ is, one of the purposes is, to further excite us for the concern for the worldwide progress of the gospel. Isaiah 62, I need to read the chapter in your hearing uh, before I, I preach on it this morning. Isaiah 62. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nation shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no longer be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, My delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. All the day and all the night they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm. I will not again give your grain to be food for your enemies, and foreigners shall not drink your wine for which you have labored. But those who garner it shall eat it and praise the Lord, and those who gather it shall drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. 
Go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people. Build up, build up the highway, clear it of stones. Lift up a signal over the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. So the reading of God's holy word. This chapter speaks, as you can clearly see, of the great glory of Zion. What is Zion? Well, in verses 6 and 7, it's very clear that Zion is Jerusalem. It's also clear as we read through the chapter that this Jerusalem or this Zion is a metaphor for something much larger than than just the geographical city of Jerusalem. Verses 11 and 12 make this very, very plain uh, where we read, Behold, the Lord is proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him. We know that refers to Christ. And the day, and they shall be called the holy people. And we know as we move into the New Testament that that is exactly what the church is called, the holy people of God. So when we see Zion in this chapter, we must think of the church of Jesus Christ. And of the glory that's spoken of here is ultimately fulfilled in the church of Jesus Christ. In fact, we who have been redeemed from the curse of the law are a holy people to God. Remember what Revelation 5.9 says, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nations. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our gods and they shall reign on the earth. Zion is the church. And you remember when we read in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 through 13, that it is through the church of Jesus Christ that God has determined to show forth His glory to all the watching world. It is a wonder, it is a wonder that God would do that through His church. But that's exactly what He does. So as we look at this chapter, we need to be keeping in mind that we're talking about the church of Jesus Christ. And um, with that in mind, I want to address this chapter and first of all answer questions as to why I've chosen this chapter to preach from. First of all, I, I think it's important that we look at this chapter in the glory of the church of Jesus Christ because we live in a day when sometimes the church of Jesus Christ doesn't look like she's too glorious. There can be some very, very dark days. Now, I'm very thankful, at least in the limited amount of traveling that I've done to other countries, that I am so encouraged wherever I go. The church, small, yes, she is. Struggling, yes, she is. Many foes against her, all that's true. But yet she's there, and she's growing, and she's increasing. And so I hope that this will be an encouragement for you as you think about the church of Jesus Christ, her glory, and the spread of the gospel around the world. I also preach from it because sometimes the church is weak. I had a call this week from a dear friend, young pastor, and things look so dismal for this friend. And so dismal for his tiny little church. And yet, 
Even though it may look dismal and almost impossible for some, we know that ultimately the church of Jesus Christ is going to succeed. There's going to be great glory. And I hope that's true of of that tiny little church that this man is a pastor of. He's doing things right. I mean, he's got 40 days of prayer that he's launching his church into, and God answers prayer. And I also preach from this passage because I want us to think of big thoughts about the church of Jesus Christ, and I believe that that will promote missions. So with that in mind, what I, what I want to do this morning is talk to you about the glory of the church of Jesus Christ. And I see three grand truths in this chapter which show the glory of the church. And it's these three grand truths that I want to present to you this morning. I'll give them to you at the beginning, and then we'll look at them one by one. By one. The first grand truth that I see is that the church has a stunning righteousness. I see that in verses 1 through 5. The second grand truth that I see in this chapter is that the church has abundant provisions from her Lord. And the third truth that I see in this chapter is that the church has strong protection from her Lord. So let's look at these one one by one. First of all, I see that the church of Jesus Christ has stunning righteousness. It comes to its height in verse 5 of the chapter, where we read, For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Who's the bridegroom? Jesus Christ. Who's the bride? It's the church of Jesus Christ. And, and the chapter begins by saying, For Zion's sake I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. That is, her brightness and her salvation through the whole world. Now, who's speaking here? Well, the commentators disagree. Some say Isaiah is speaking. Some say the Lord is speaking. But either way, the truth is the same, isn't it? I happen to think it's the Lord speaking. Because it's the Lord who's speaking down in in verse 6, on your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set a watchman. But even if you disagree with me, that's okay. Because the point I want you to see is that there is a proclamation here that the Lord or the prophet will not keep silent until the brightness of the righteousness of the church of Jesus Christ is made known and seen. And is going to be proclaimed, always be proclaimed. And And I say to you, that um, this, th- th- this righteousness is a righteousness which only the Lord can give. And we'll look at that in, in just a few moments. Gentiles and kings, the text says, will see this, verse 2. They will see this and they will glory in it. Oh, how I long for Premier Chi in China to see the glory of the church. You know, some of those officials over in China have seen the glory of the church in times past. Sad to say this premier is clamping down and trying to do away with the church. He'll not succeed. He will not succeed. He can never succeed. Kings and Gentiles will see. You remember the great hymn, The Church's One Foundation? Mid toil and tribulation and tumult over war. She waits the consummation of peace forevermore, till with the vision glorious her longing eyes are blessed, and the great church victorious shall be the church at rest. Now, so stunning is this righteousness we find in verse 3, 
that you shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God, no longer forsaken. Verse 5, it says, For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. In other words, what is happening here is, is this. There is this, there is this stunning righteousness and this stunning glory. My wife and I have been married 51 and a half years. June 25th, 1966. June 25th, as I'm sure many of you men would say, and women who are married, your wedding date is a day that you'll never forget. I'll, now, now, we lived in a day, I don't know if this is done anymore. We lived in a day when the groom didn't see the bride in her dress until the day that she walked in from the back of the church. That's just the way it was. I know sometimes they take pictures ahead of time. I think a young man misses a whole lot if that happens. That's just my opinion. You know, you, you can do what you want on that. But I remember at North Baptist Church in Corning, New York, where my wife and I were married. And I remember her walking in that door and coming to the side and her, on her father's arm. And I remember looking at her, and it took my breath away. Such a beautiful woman I had never seen. I'd seen her many, many times, but I mean in her wedding dress where she was going to be presented to me, to be my wife. And obviously it's worked. (laughs) 51 and a half years. Well, that was a wonderful, wonderful sight. Well, you see, that's what's being portrayed for us here in this passage of Scripture. It is. As verse 5b says, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God rejoices over you. And if you're married, men, and you rejoiced over your bride, and I hope you still do, even if you've been married 50 plus years, and you rejoiced over your bride, I mean, this is a wonderful, wonderful thing. It, 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 it is almost inexpressibly happiness. And this is what the Lord has over his people. This is how he looks at his church. He finds his church to be stunning. Now, why is it that he sees the church so righteous? Well, if we look back at chapter 61, verses 10 and 11, we soon find out. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord, the prophet says, and my soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. The Lord sees his church as clothed with righteousness. It is the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and that is why the triune God rejoices over his church. Because she's been purchased by the blood of the Son. Because she has been clothed with the righteousness that only Jesus Christ can give. And, and it goes on in verse 10. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest and with a beautiful headdress. And as the bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts. And as a garden, garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up. So the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. Because the Lord himself provides the righteousness. And so he rejoices over the church. What glory the church has. This righteousness of the church is so stunning that the Lord says he'll never forsake the church. 
verses 4 and 5 again indicate that. And not only that, he's going to give the church a new name. And this new name is found in verse 4, depending on your translation, how it may read. But my translation says, my delight is in her, and she shall be called married. The old King James said, Beulah. I like married better than Beulah. But, but a new name. It says, this is my work. This is my bride. I'm giving her my name. And that's what at least in our culture, is normally done. When a bride comes, she gets a new name, has to change her social security card, has to change her driver's license, has to change everything because she gets a new name. Well, the Lord gives his church a name, and it is the name I delight in her. It is a name that is righteousness. It is a name that she's Beulah, that she's Mary. This is the glory of the church of Jesus Christ. And my dear friend, if you are in the church, This is what the Lord thinks of you. You're his delight. (laughs) He glories in you. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, there's no delight of the Lord in you at all. But you may have it because all that delight of the Lord is found in and through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Oh, you see, this glory is not because of who we are. It is because of who Christ is. This glory is not because of what we have done. It is because of what Jesus Christ has done. That is why that glory is ours. It is because the Spirit of God has brought us into union with Christ. And because he's brought us into union with Christ, so there is a glory about us. Because of Jesus Christ. Does not that encourage you? Does not that encourage you as an individual believers? Does not that encourage you as a church? And I think of my dear friend who has this tiny church is about ready to fall apart. It'll encourage him too to know that the glory of Christ, no matter how many trials and tribulations and difficulties may come to the church, yet the Lord preserves and keeps her. Promises to do that. I was in pastoral ministry for many, many years, and many times I would go to an elders' meeting with my co-elder or elders, as the case may be, and I would think, we're going to fall apart, there's going to be nothing left. I can see it. I can just see it. And you know what happened? It never happened, because the Lord heard our prayers and healed the problem. Oh, how we can seek Him in prayer, and He will heal the problem. If this is the way that the Lord thinks of the church, then that's the way we should think of the church. And even though the church may look at times like she's in a sorry mess, she's beautiful. She's beautiful in the eyes of God because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Well, that's the first grand truth that I see in this chapter, and that is that the church has a stunning righteousness. Now, there's a second grand truth that I see in this chapter, And that grand truth is, verses 6 through 9, that the church has abundant provisions. And of course, it's in this poetic Hebrew language that this is um, mentioned. But you know, after the wedding, after a wedding, there is sometimes a feast. Not everybody has a feast after the wedding, but sometimes there is. And I'm not saying you ought to have a feast. I'm just thinking of some of the feasts that I've had at weddings. And 
We've gone into the special venue, and there's the hors d'oeuvres, the shrimp cocktail, the cheese, the crackers, the fruit, something to drink, while we're waiting for the bride and groom to make their grand entrance into the hall. And then sometimes they have this sit-down dinner. I'm not saying you should do that. I'm just saying sometimes I've been to weddings where this is done. And we sit down. We have the prime rib. We have the garlic mashed potatoes. We have the delightful vegetable and um, a wonderful salad that served us. I hope you ate breakfast so you're not too hungry. <laughs> and then, then they bring out the desserts, maybe some cheesecake. And, of course, then you have the wedding cake at the end. And there's all these wonderful provisions that are made at the wedding. Well, here it is that Christ has a bride. He delights in the bride. And we've seen the, the stunning righteousness of the bride. Now, what's the feast like? That, the, that God provides for his bride. Well, in this feast, it, it's much better than all the food I've described. Uh, there's two basic, two basic elements found in this feast that the Lord provides for his church. They are absolute necessities, and they assure the glory of the church. They assure the growth of the church. They assure the fact that the church will, will indeed be a light in this dark world in which he finds itself. The first element of this provision is prayer. Look at verses, verse 6. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I, that is the Lord God, have set watchmen all the day and all the night. They shall never be silent. You who put the Lord, now he's addressing these watchmen. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. <laughs> he provides prayer. Does that remind you of anything? Does that remind you of what happened in the book of Acts? Does that remind you of the early church when the apostles were overburdened with caring for the widows and serving tables. And does that remind you of the time they gathered these people together, and as they gathered them together, they said, listen, this is an important ministry, but we need to give ourselves to what? The ministry of the Word of God and to prayer. There's something I know about every faithful pastor. He prays. And there's something else. He doesn't just pray but he prays for his flock. And not only just for his flock, but he prays in a larger way for the progress of the gospel in missions, in other churches, and for other pastors that he knows. Why? Because the Lord has set the watchman, as the text says, on the walls of the church. And the watchmen pray. And not only do they pray, but they encourage the church of Jesus Christ to pray. And so <clears throat> a church worth its salt is going to have a time of corporate prayer as well. And I know you have that. 
And in this time of corporate prayer, there is a concern not only for your local church, but for missions and for the progress of the gospel. Why is this? Because this is one of the most fundamental provisions that the Lord gives his church. It is to have watchmen who are praying. And there are some of you, and may God increase your tribe. There are some of you who make it your purpose to pray for this church and to pray for missions and to pray for the progress of the gospel. Perhaps you use various tools to do that, to help you to remember in prayer. Oh, I pray, I pray that you would increasingly be a praying church, that you would be one of those watchmen Set on the walls, because this is a provision which the Lord gives to his church. Now, there is a second provision that the Lord gives to his church, and that we find in verses 8 and 9. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm, I will not again give your grain to be food for your enemies and foreigners uh, for which you have labored. But those who garnered it shall eat it. And my mind went as I read this. <clears throat> I went to, um, I thought about Gideon. And I thought about Gideon threshing wheat in a wine press. Um, usually you thresh wheat on a grain floor, but he was in a wine press. And of course he was trying to hide from the Midianites and, and be as wise as he possibly could. Because the Midianites came in. And because of the sin of Israel, they took the grain, they took the crops, and left the people in poverty. And now the Lord comes and says, in, this, in the church, in this new covenant day, he says the church is not going to go hungry. There's going to be food. There's going to be the word that is taught, the word that is preached. And I know that in this place... One of the basic reasons you're here is because the Bible is opened and the Bible is explained and your soul is fed and your mind is enlightened regarding the great truths of the Scripture. Why is that? It is because of the abundant provision of Jesus Christ. He's gifted His churches with men who can preach the truth and men who can encourage the saints. (laughs) And so He provides in this way. Oh, you see, this is why the church will remain glorious and be known in the world. It is because of these two very important provisions of prayer, the ministry of the Word of God. And that's what the book of Isaiah is talking about. And so it is that there is this wonderful, wonderful provision. I hope you give thanks to God for those who teach you. And for those who lead you into the truth, those who inform your minds, and as your mind is informed, your heart is warmed. And as your heart is warmed, you determine by the grace of God as you leave this place, oh, Lord, help me to serve you better, to love you better, to be a better husband, to be a better wife, to be a better uh, a child in obedience to parents, to be a better workman, to be a bolder witness where I am. All that comes as a result of prayer and the ministry of the Word of God. Well, there is a third. There is a third provision that the Lord gives, and that we find in verses 10 through 12. And that provision is a, um, a strong protection. 
And oh, what a wonderful comfort this is to think of the strong protection. Over the years, I have done uh, a number of weddings and, of course, a number of counseling sessions for the, in premarital counseling. And as I was thinking about these verses, my mind went especially to one couple that I counseled. And, and this particular couple, um, the bride was, everyone knew the bride was intellectually superior to the groom. The groom was not, he was very intelligent, but the bride was just college trained and she was intellectually. And so I, I wanted to explore this with them. And so I asked the bride-to-be, I said, well, what is it that attracts you to? And I gave his name. And her answer was very telling. She says, when I'm with him, I feel safe. I feel protected. And, and this young man had grown up in the church. I'd actually done the wedding ceremony for his parents. And uh, so I knew him quite well. And, and I knew the testimony of others and uh, my observation. Now, one might say, well, it's because he was six foot tall, 200 plus, without a piece of fat on him at all, all muscle. And that was all true. That was all very true. Um, <clears throat> but he was also a gentle soul. He was a thoughtful soul. He was a helpful soul. And when this young woman said to me, with him I feel safe, I knew exactly what she meant. And I knew exactly why she was so attracted to him. And I knew exactly why she respected him so much, even though, even though she was intellectually his superior. She was safe. Now, dear friends, we're not the intellectual superiors of Jesus Christ. But... With him, the church of Jesus Christ is safe. The church of Jesus Christ is protected. Safe and protected. Look at these verses. Go through. Go through the gates. Prepare the way for the people. How is she protected? Well, first of all, she is protected because there is a way that's made safe for her. All the obstacles that she may face are removed. Prepare the way, prepare the way. Build up, build up the highway. Lift a signal over the people. Behold, the Lord is proclaimed to the ends of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Clear it of stones. In other words, what the Lord does is he so protects and so preserves his people that any obstacles which would cause the church to be destroyed if they were not taken out of the way are removed. He makes the highway smooth so that the church can do what she's called to do. You know, there are so many obstacles that the church of Jesus Christ faces. There is the obstacle of apathy. The church is sometimes lethargic, sometimes, but the Lord then brings revival. Or brings a great reformation as he did in the days of Luther and Calvin and Zwingli. There's the obstacle of legalism. 
You know, the Pharisees, of course, existed in Jesus' day, but there are Pharisees today who are always telling us, this is really what you've got to do to be a good Christian, or this is how you become a Christian. Away with legalism. It is the bane of the churches. Jesus Christ clothed in his gospel is what the church needs and must have. All the blessings of the heavenly places are in Jesus Christ. And when we have Christ and understand his love, of course we will do good works. But that's because of Christ and his love for us. But oh, we'll not do those good works in order to gain his favor. So there is the obstacle of legalism. There's the obstacle of despair. Sometimes we wonder whether or not we're ever going to succeed and make it. I I think of the dear woman in John chapter 8 who is taken in the very act of adultery. And there were her accusers. And Jesus wrote in the ground. And then finally, after uh, he rose up, he said, which of you are without guilt cast the first stone? Of course, no one did. They all walked away. And he asked the woman, he said, is no one here to accuse you? The woman must have been in absolute shame and despair. And Jesus just said simple words to her. Neither do I condemn you. Christ came for sinners. Go and sin no more. I suspect we'll see her in heaven. I'm sure we will. She was forgiven. The obstacle of despair is taken away by the simple words of Jesus Christ. Go and sin no more. There is the obstacle of misinformed theology. The woman at the well had that. Uh, Jews say you should worship Jerusalem. We, we, We Samaritans say we should worship here. What's the right place to worship? Well, Jesus said, your theology is misinformed. You don't know what you're talking about. But the day is coming when those who worship God must worship him in spirit and truth. And so theology has to be corrected many, many times. There's many other obstacles that the church of Jesus Christ may face. But the point is, you see, what the prophet is telling us here is that the stones are cleared away. That's one of the things that pastors have to do is clear away stones so the church can walk on a smooth path. Encourage the church, correct misinformed theology, do away with legalism, encourage the church not to be apathetic, all these things, you see. But this is, a, this is the protection, and there's a further protection, and the protection really reaches its height here in verses 11 and 12. Your salvation comes, 11b. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. The church of Jesus Christ has the promise that she will never, ever, ever be forsaken. Never will the church be able to say, Lord, why did you forsake me? There was one who was forsaken, that's Jesus Christ. But the church will never say, Be able to say, why was I forsaken? Oh, sometimes she'll pray the prayers of the psalm. I understand that. Sometimes she will feel like, and it seems like she is forsaken. But as she seeks the Lord in prayer, once again, the Lord comes and comforts and helps her. The promise is, even if we feel like we're forsaken, we are not forsaken. Because the Lord Jesus said, 
I will be with you even until the end of the age. That's the promise of Christ. And he is always with his people. The glory of the gospel is that Christ has purchased the people. They are secure. They can never be lost. They are found in Christ. And if we're in Christ, we can never get out of him. And we never want to be out of him. And we are safe and secure in and through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here is the glory of the church. Dear friends, the church really is glorious. She has this stunning righteousness. It's a righteousness which has been given to her by God because Christ earned it and because Christ paid the debt of the church. And when God sees the church, he sees nothing but glory, 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 righteousness, righteousness, righteousness. He says nothing but delight, 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 delight in his church. And the glory of the church is seen in her abundant provisions. The Lord gives the church all that she needs. She needs prayer. And so he raises up men and women to pray for her. She needs the teaching of the word of God. And so he raises up gifts to the church to teach the word of God. And to encourage her and to rebuke her and to help her. And to help her see the truth. The church needs to know that she is safe. That there is a strong man there who loves her and will do all that it takes to make sure that she is protected and that she remains secure. And that strong man is Jesus Christ. And so it is. Our God gives all this to his church. Does this not mean that we should rejoice if we're a part of the church because all this is true of us? Does this not mean that we should look around and say, Lord, are there other churches that can be planted in California? Does this not cause us to look around and say, oh, Lord, cause the the, the great missionary cause to progress and increase, that that there may be churches planted all over our globe, even in so-called closed countries? Lord, cause that to be so, because when this happens, wherever churches are raised up, there is more of the glory of God that is seen in the world. And again, I say, do you know our Lord Jesus Christ? Oh, if you know him, all these things are true of you individually. If you don't know him, these things aren't true of you individually, but they may be if you'll be found in Christ. And to be found in Christ... You call on the name of the Lord, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved. Turning from your sin as one who is guilty and helpless, coming to Christ, and you'll have everlasting life. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your mercies, which are new every day. We do pray now that you be pleased to bless your word to our hearts Help us, we pray, to see more of the glory of the church as you have declared it. Help us to work and to serve for you as we ought. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.